Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast. I'll be your host today. My name is Leslie Morse. And in this episode, I talk with Dr. Lynn Kelly. She is the author of the book, Change Questions, and has spent her career implementing change at large-scale enterprises. She's been a keynote speaker at a variety of international conferences and has taught a hands-on one-day Change Questions course for individuals so that they are better prepared to lead change efforts within their organizations. And we unpack that exact topic in this conversation. We talk about what it means to create a ripe environment for change, and we use that lens of questions that help people uncover the different dimensions they need to consider when working to implement change efforts with teams and organizations. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Lynn. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Leslie. Nice to be here. I am excited to dig into change. It is a topic that I've recently been revisiting some of my own connections with it. So this is just going to help further my own study and my work. And I hope our listeners are really able to uh, geek out on it as well as they're listening with us today. Good. Me too. <laughs> so before we get too far, I want people to just learn a little bit more about you. Um, you're not squarely in our Agile universe, but you are an expert in the change area and have recently written the book. And what led you to being a woman who's a professional focused in this area of expertise? Well, I, I guess I would say curiosity, but I would say that I took a very, uh, not a straight path, right? So um, when I first started my uh, my life in terms of 18 years old and up, I was a hippie. I mean, I, I was, I played in a band. I did that for like 10 years. I was, uh, in the last three years of that, I was a stay-at-home mom with, with three young children under the age of three. And then at 28 years old, my husband came home and he said he lost his job. Mm. And it was the, the oil crisis. There were no jobs in the automotive sector. I was in Detroit. Uh, and, you know, here we are thinking of I've got two young kids and I could lose everything. So I, I decided I needed to go back to work and I had never really had a real, you know, a, a traditional job. So I got a job as a secretary of a hospital and I decided I better get a degree. So I started school full-time too and my husband stayed home. So I worked full-time, started school full-time. Six years later, I was chief operating officer of this little tiny hospital. Um, I had my master's degree. But then, then, you know, life hits you because right suddenly we had three deaths in one year. My husband's mother, my husband's brother, and my mother all died in the same year. I was 34 years old, mm-hmm. and, um, and it was just really tough. And I realized, you know, that bait and switch thing where that um, I had gone to work and gone to school to build stability for my family, and suddenly... Um, I had kind of swapped all that because then I was just working all the and worked on focusing on my career. So then my husband and I changed plans. He went back to work, and I uh, I went into a PhD program. And then I you know became a professor. I was a stats professor for a number of years and did consulting. And um, I got into lean like right off the bat and was doing a lot of lean work. And then ended up um, Textron came to me and said to me, uh, hey. Uh, do you want to do what you did and lean with these factories in Michigan in Paris, France? <laughs> so I left academia and I went, I went over to the Europe and I worked over there and worked for Textron. And ultimately that started my traditional career. And then when was it that you hooked into 
change and what it means to lead change effectively. Yeah. Like, how did that bug get in you? Because that I, I'm guessing it's a little similar to like when us as agilists, when we get bit by the agile bug, like we're just changed for forever. Like what bit you with that change bug? Yeah. So what happened was when I was in my MBA, we had we had a little tiny three week semester over at Toyota. And that was when Toyota was just like the Japan was just taken off and all the the, the U.S. manufacturers were failing. So um, so I saw like this whole lean thing. Right. Right. I mean, we were in Toyota. We were at the plants. I saw it like right away. And then I came back and I, I thought, well, I like this. And then Dr. Deming with his 14 points, I started understanding there's a whole big world out there. So that when I started in lean and started like doing in Paris and in Europe, what I was doing in the U.S., which was lean, basic early lean, I, I failed. I mean, I really failed. And so what happened is I had to dig into, I may have the best solution, just like agile may be the f best solution. But if people don't, believe in it, buy in it, engage in it, then it will, then, then what good is it? So mm -hmm. that's then when I really started understanding, I, I want to under, I want to know lean really well, but I also want to know change because I have to make sure that people, I'm doing everything possible so that people buy into this great, great thing. Yeah. I, um, there's so many questions I have and things that I just want to start unpacking. But before we get there, like I love the story of seemingly like a non-traditional career that many of us have had in terms of timeline and how things things change. Having been a, a woman navigating that, reflecting on how you experience the world of work today, any um, insights or recommendations or things that you might give to people at all all different stages of their career now given your wisdom um i i think one thing is i, I think one of my little life lessons is never ever ever feel sorry for myself like, like, there's always things to, as a woman, there's a lot of things you can, like going, going to Europe uh, as the first American in this company that had just bought these iconic French and German companies, right? And going into manufacturing as a woman. And, you know, all of these things, um, I could have, I, I, well, I did. I felt sorry for myself. Oh, my, oh, it's because I'm a woman or it's because, but, but, and yeah, yes, it's because I was American. Yes, all of that. But if you start being the victim, then it, it works against you. It's a, it's a downward spiral. It reinforces itself. So instead, you know, you look at that and you go, okay, well, what, what can I do? So I think that was one of the mantras that I had. I have two mantras. One is continuously improve myself in everything I touch. And the other one is never, ever, ever feel sorry for myself. You know, I mean, I can self-love, I can do all of that, but but don't wallow in that self-pity because you, you just got to find a way and make it work. Yeah, there's something that reminds me about that of one of my favorite books, Don Miguel Ruiz and the Four Agreements and the don't take it personally. Yes. Like, um, if, if we're able to act in alignment with kind of our own values and integrity, you think it's you're holding yourself true. And that's like the source of the self-love for me. Exactly. And it's, it's the anecdote, I think, to um, those downward spirals we can get into. And in in, because we talk to ourselves more than we talk to anybody else yeah, in the world, that's right? right? <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think that self-love is so important. And then while you're loving yourself, 
you you don't just keep doing the positive message, oh yeah, I love myself, I love myself, but you also think, okay, so what can I do mm-hmm. to be effective in spite of this situation? Because cause I, I did find that I was in Paris and and I, I was thinking, I'm in the best place in the world. Why am I feeling sad because I'm not being successful at this? And, you know, was, and, and I was saying, but I, and you know, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. I was kept doing that message. And then I realized, okay, well, if you believe it's not you, then figure it out, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, and you, you think- can't always figure it out either, right? I mean, sometimes no. you have to say, everything's stacked against me. I can make things a little better and I can call that a victory. Yeah. Well, there's something really interesting about just the way you're talking on this that I think is an interesting segue into this topic of change. And I'll think about it in the role of especially like people who serve as a scrum master, right? Accountable for the success of scrum for their teams and their organizations. Someone who serves as a product owner, accountable for maximizing the value of the products and services created. Agile coaches often you know, key in playing that change agent role as organizations are adopting agile ways of working, it can often feel like the whole burden of success around a change effort or of value delivery is sitting on your shoulders. Right. So for me, I always am evaluating, do I have ground conditions for change? Is the soil that this group of people is operating in fertile and ready for change. So when you think about creating successful change efforts and the environment for that to succeed, what are the things that you've really learned that set people up for success? Oh yeah, so I learned it all through my failures. (laughs) So clearly I made a lot of failures. But the thing is that according to a lot of studies, 60 to 70% of all major change initiatives fail. And knowing that, it's it when we go into trying to change something or implement something we're it's almost like we're afraid that we'll jinx it if we say hey we might fail at this right so we don't say it we don't recognize it and by not recognizing it we increase the probability of failure because what you really want to do is you want to do all those things that will mitigate the risk of failure and and what i ended up doing as i went through all of this is every time i failed i researched it and i came up for me these 11 questions that i would ask myself every time i'm going to implement anything and and of those not all of them were applicable, but I just say, okay, what about this? What about this? What about it? And then I ended up, once I answered those questions, is this in place? Is this in place? I, the ones that didn't, I'd have to create a solution. And then I'd ended up with like a customized implementation plan for that particular change, different from the one I had done before, but, but very focused on what does this change need? And so the time that we put into planning is well worth it. And I, and I am so so a believer in that we have to plan it ahead of time and mitigate all of those risk areas for that could lead to failure yeah there's a quote that i often brought forward when i was teaching new organizations especially the teams really focused on incremental delivery about planning was um it's an eisenhower quote plans are useless but the act of planning is indispensable because it's the wisdom that comes from the conversations in the plan but the moment you start executing the plan itself actually like you know 
things change. Exactly. <laughs> obviously. Right. So what are some of those key questions? Because yep. we won't go through all 11, no. but maybe like your two or three favorite questions that would bring forward that most wisdom in the planning process. Okay. So one of them is all around uh, capability building. Okay. So um, there, there was a study that I love that, that looked at capability building and said that there are it's not just training and development. So part of it was, it looked at when, after a change had been implemented, it went back and said, okay, so in the areas that people didn't adopt these changes, was it lack of commitment or lack of capability? And they found 5% of the time it was lack of commitment and 16%, they were committed, but they didn't have the ability. And so this study broadened the idea of capability building to tools resources, infrastructure. And so a lot of times we, we put in a training and development program, but we don't give them a help aid if things go wrong, or we don't say, wait a minute, let me look beyond this. How, we, how is that manager measuring success? What is in that person's um, annual plan for their, their goals for success? Are the metrics are, is this going to take more time? And are they measured time-based? So then what, how do we work on those metrics? You know, what do we, what do we do to mitigate the risk of failure here? So that's one area that I really find important is to, is to broaden capability building beyond just training. Yeah. Cause I think it's so easy to think about capability building at the individual sort of level. Does Bob have the skills? Does Susan have the skills? Right. Does Pradeepa have the skills, right? And right. But the organizational capabilities, if the organization doesn't have the capabilities needed for Bob, Sue, and Pradeepa to work in different ways, they're just, they don't actually have what they need to do something different. Because that might be, my comp plan tells me I'll get a promotion if I do these things, but yet you just taught me I should do it this way, and exactly. those are in conflict. Exactly. It's a, just taking it a big, understanding the context where yeah. the change is taking place and, and kind of the influences. It takes a little bit of time, right? But if the if it takes a lot more time to fail and if 60 to 70% of the time you fail and every time you fail, it's harder to get people to buy into change the next time. It is, it is. Yeah. I, I don't wanna move on from this though before we talk about that word commitment a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And if I think I heard you correctly, that more of the people said it was like a lack of commitment to the change versus a lack of skill or capability? No, it was actually, interestingly enough, only 5% said that they didn't change because of they weren't committed to the change. 16% oh, okay. gotcha. said, okay. and that's, and that's, you know, after the change was implemented and mm -hmm. it was asked, what are your barriers? And it found that 5% said, well, we don't believe in it. And then, but 16% said we wanted to, we couldn't, you know? So Interesting. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Cause I, I perceive our global corporate economy, I guess I'll, I'll phrase it that way, in um, a large state of change fatigue. Yeah, like agreed. Both agreed. in our personal lives and agreed. in our, our corporate work yep. lives. Yep. And so that idea of commitment to change when change is always happening, how yep. have you seen that evolve? Yeah, yeah. So uh, let me let me bring in another uh, study that could, it may seem contradictory on the surface, but it has to do with the timing. So there's there's been a lot of research around this 20-60-20 curve, and it means that 20% of the people really are open to change. They're kind of those change agent people, people that love change. Sometimes it's hard to work for them because everything changes all the time, you know, but that 
kind of person. Then there's 60% in the middle that are neutral. And then the 20% that resist and actively resist. And what's so interesting is that of the 20% that resist, when you dig into that number, 5% of the people is usually the number you'll never get. Thus, the link with the other study that said 5%, you know, weren't committed to this change. That was after it was implemented, right? So those two match, which is interesting. But, but I'll, another thing to think about when one of the other change questions is, is there a way that we can pilot this or do this with a change agent? Because change agents tend to have people who work with them that are open to change because uh, people will self-select that department if they, if they don't want to change. And um, because the thing is, think of Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, you want to get the 60% in the middle. And if you do a peanut butter spread and implement everywhere at once, and I know sometimes you have to, but if you if, if you can have a choice and implement, but if you actually don't have a choice, if you do everybody at once, who has the loudest voice to influence the 60%? It's the people that are against the change. So now you're working against those folks tipping over to the negative, and what you really need is a tip the other way. So what I often try to do is find a way, even if it's a small pilot, I find a change agent because I need to get the 60%. And then part of the, another change question is how, I, how can I recognize success? And so then what I do is I build up before I've even implemented and I've got, before I've even have any successes, I build up the recognition plan for success. It's gonna go in the company newsletter, the CEO's gonna talk about it, the department lead's gonna talk about it. And, and so as we see even little successes, we build that positive momentum to get that 60%. Yeah, I think there's something cool here. I'm a, as many of us are these days, a Brene Brown fan, and the marble jar metaphor that she uses about relationship currency. And yeah. every interaction you have with somebody is an opportunity to put marbles in the jar or take marbles out. And often in change efforts, we so focus on like, what didn't go well and what do we need to do differently? And we don't sit in that spot of gratitude and appreciation long enough. So we're not, we're, we're taking marbles out of the jar all the time, not putting them in. So having that, especially from leadership, that deliberate commitment to how are we going to recognize, how are we going to highlight, how are we going to celebrate, that is continually dumping marbles in. So you always have that currency to deal with because things will go wrong and there will be moments where it's like you're dumping off all the marbles <laughs> and then you're we right. got to all figure out how to put them back in together. Exactly. And, you know, we're asking a lot of people when we ask them to change and then to not recognize what they're doing when so many people don't want to do it is it, we do them a disservice, too. You know, yeah. so and then but I, again and again, I've, I've seen implementations go in of certain changes and, we, and no one even thinks about, oh, how are we going to let people know the good stuff that's happening till yeah. they start seeing a few good things? If you expect that good things will happen, figure out how to how you're going to talk about it immediately. Figure that out and just grab those success stories and get them out there. Yeah. So you talked about your 11 questions you ask yourself to really set up for success. One of those first ones you said that was most powerful for you was around like looking at capabilities, not just of individuals, but of the organizations. The things we've been talking about, has that been hitting on other questions from that bank of 11? Or what's another one of those that's really important, you think? Yeah, you know, I think there's actually two more, but let me, if we have time, I'll get, I'll get to both. Otherwise, I'll, let me hit on this one because it's okay. quick. Thinking about 
a planned communication. So, you know, I talked about recognition, and that's a piece of the communication plan, but two other elements are really important that I think, first of all, frequently asked questions. Every single, and this is the research shows, every time that someone announces a change, everybody's first thought is, what will this mean to me? And they go to the negative. Almost everybody goes, okay, am I going to have a pay cut? Am I going to have to work overtime? Am I going to, you know, all of those things. How am I, how is this change going to impact me personally? Well, they have questions. And, and why don't we create a list of all those questions? That, and even when you start, I always tell when I'm working with change teams, as soon as you hear people ask you questions, what is this? Grab that question, write it down. And then before we announce the big change, let's get answers to all those questions. Let's put it on the company website. Let's give it to managers. Because if you don't, managers have to make up the answers, right? I mean, they, you know, if somebody says, will this affect my hours? Oh, I don't know. I, maybe. I mean, no. I mean, if it isn't, it isn't. And if it's a hard question and it is going to affect their hours, tell them. I mean, yeah. the rumors are worse than reality, right? And they yes. respect you when you give them the truth. There is something so, so, so important in that, Lynn. And that is around in the absence of information, people make up stories and they are often the worst versions of the stories you can imagine. And you spend your time like working against people's creative imaginations, not actually the reality of what's happening. And that's really challenging. Exactly. And, and, you know, and sometimes those questions are hard. Like um, we did, you know, when I was at Union Pacific Railroad, a huge change off across 42,000 employees, most of them unionized, running trains, you know, conductors, engineers, on uh, working track. And we had to, we had some of them, are, you know, we had to go to the union, we had to get answers from the union, or we'd go to, we go to leadership and say, well, they want to know, are they going to lose their job if they don't do this, right? I mean, and the leadership, well, we don't know. Well, we need an answer. Like, we need an answer, right? And it can be maybe, or it can be yes, or it can be no, not for the next year. But whatever that is, think about it now, right? Don't let, don't let it, remember the 60%. You yeah. want to grab them, right? So, so if you have people making up bad answers, they're going to go the other way. Okay, so this this is where the agilist in me is feeling tension because <laughs> it is easy to listen to a little bit of what you're saying in there and it starts feeling like big design up front, a sure. little command and control, yep. right? Very change management, Got which it. I have an aversion to. Um, yep. Actually, recently uh, bought the domains changefluency.org yeah. like, and .com and .net because I, I don't love think it. it's actually about managing change because right. change is happening all the time. How do we become fluent in change? I love so, it. So when you're sitting there and you're like you're doing something like you described with like you know forty thousand people in a workforce and and, and something yeah. shifting, this whole like the brain trust sitting off in a room, figuring it all out by themselves, then doing it. They, that sounds like a recipe for failure. As Agilist, we'd say, what is the one right. most important thing we can do to shift us towards where we wanna be and do it in this more incremental fashion? So how have you seen this big design up front versus incremental and iterative play out in your organizations and, love and, and initiatives? Yeah, I love it. I love that and I and I agree with you. And I and 
I also have an aversion to the whole idea of change management. That's why the book is Change Questions, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not about us having all the answers in management. It's the question. It's asking the questions. However, I do want to. I do want to say the reason I just described the way I did the frequently asked questions is a lot of times it's only leadership that can answer those questions, and so the recognition that some things we don't have flexibility on. In other words, if, if leadership says, yes, we're going to put this in, in, in the work instructions, and if the union folks don't follow it, then they could be written up. And I mean, there are things that are non-negotiable. Right. For the most part, for the most part, I am with you 100%. I believe in small experiments fail fail quick and you know <laughs> fail fast and and learn from them right um and and constantly understanding the context where the change is taking place and the other one another change question is what value do we expect to get from the change and to build in progress checks because if change is going to fail the research shows it's going to fail in the first 30 days so quickly how can we where do we get our feedback that things are we need to course correct and you know and rather than a full plan a timeline plan of just focused on timelines and deadlines we build in time for learning i a hundred percent i love that i'm glad you yeah. brought it up i'm so glad you brought it up yeah and that or that part that the, the processes and the frameworks and the methods for making small commitments, getting feedback, like that's our expertise as Agilists, right? We do yeah. that. Yeah. And the um, one of the shadow sides of our industry is a little bit of, um, I call it intellectual appropriation. Like we go to a six hour workshop on really, you know, effective change techniques, or we listen to a couple podcasts with people talking about it. And then we claim ourselves like change experts yeah. um, as even, but we're really not like steeped in this. Right. So I think it's important to remind all of, you know, our listeners and us as agilists, like keeping, keeping time in that cycle of feedback for yourself on your own skills in key adjacent expert areas like leading change or you know product management or whatever it may be there's all these adjacencies we touch as agilists is really important yeah, um, yeah. and change is a very i think key critical aspect of that and and because it's happening so often how do you balance all that timeline milestone success stuff I, there's a african proverb that's often quoted um, if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together yeah but sometimes leaders are so focused on speed and milestones right. to achieve these definitions right. of success. How do you see speed play into change? Yeah, yeah. So uh, way back, I don't even remember how many years ago, but early in my career, that was one of the failure things, focusing on deadlines and timelines. And I read a really good article in the Harvard Business Review about uh, it was they studied 400 organizations globally that had implemented change. And there they found that there were two different approaches. One they called operational speed, which is time-based. So it's this, people are measured by success because they met the deadline. 500 people trained by February 1st, right? That's a measure of success. We don't know if they're well-trained. We don't know if they're using the skills. We don't know if any, they were trained, you know? So now I'm successful. So, um, and then the other one they called strategic. 
and the strategic speed was we have it we have a timeline yes we have a timeline but we have built in small cycles for improvement and we we still try to make this the timeline but we have to balance it's not the only metric we balance that against learning and growing because if we have a an implementation plan that delivers on time but doesn't deliver results or fails, then it's worthless. And so I think our pitch to everybody who's focused only on timeline is, look, do you want one something that, you know, you don't want something that fails? And what this study did show is that 54%, the strategic speed delivered 54% better results than the operational speed three years later. So three years later, they went back and looked at everything and strategic speed delivers. I mean, and so the I, so that's another one of the change questions is how can we build in these, these tiny little steps but still keep to the timeline? And yeah. it's a balance. You know what? There's no like one answer because that takes skill, right? You just have a timeline based. That's easy. Deadline, 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 deadline. Now you've got to balance two competing priorities. That takes wisdom. And I think it's using our wisdom to do that. You can't go one way. You can't just experiment forever. And you can't go the other way. It's timeline. It's a balance. Yeah, it's, it's very much in that conversation realm that many of us engage in around like the the business case for agility. So I want to make sure a link to that HBR article is part of our show notes. Great. Because that might be a good one for some some of us to share with executives and other leaders that we work with on right. a day-to-day basis. Those ones that tend to have that, that bias towards operational um, speed versus the others. Lynn, um, as we start going to wrap up, what are a couple other just really good kind of tactical recommendations um, and suggestions you've got for people? Tactically, I think the main thing is that you plan ahead of time and you cover, find your own change questions, uh, but just really really think about, do I understand the context? Do I have good communication? Do I have recognition? And try to answer all those questions. And And if you do, you're golden. But if not, Put your mitigation, risk mitigation in place before you implement. That's really my, you know, let's don't go insane. We'll jinx it if we talk about failure. You know what? Odds are against you. You probably will fail if that's the case. So so address it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with liberating structures? Some no, facilitation no. techniques? There's a liberating structure called uh, a TRIZ, which is specifically designed to like, what are all the things we could do to absolutely sabotage this thing? And you sit in that space purposefully because it forces you to be like, oh, well, this is an easy thing we could do to avoid having that happen. Exactly. And it just gets you in that place. Um, If people want to find your list of 11 questions or dig into some of your thoughts and perspectives on this stuff more, where should they go? What should they be looking up? Yeah, so changequestions.net is uh, is our website. And so the book was written with John Shook, and many of you know him. He's kind of a famous lean guy, really good good person. We, we really wanted to make this available to everybody. So what we did is we put all of the change questions in a fillable PDF, so a digital workbook, and it's free. So you awesome. can go on changequestions.net, you can click on the digital workbook, you can download it, you can use it yourself, you can do whatever you want to, but it, it, it's a way, especially if you have remote teams, that you can work through those questions and all of them are there. And then if you need more help, you can you can get the book on Amazon in audiobook, Kindle, or, or the book itself. Um, it's called Change Questions. 
Yeah, and if someone wants to connect more with you, LinkedIn probably the best way? LinkedIn is great. Also, there's a place on the changequestions.net website to do an email. Okay, awesome, Lynn. I've got a couple closing questions for you. Before we get there, anything else you wanna share? No, no <laughs> I'm good. good. I'm okay. golden. Awesome. Okay. You did a great job. <laughs> well, thank you. I, it has been delightful talking to you. I hope our listeners are, are loving this as well. The, the, the area of change, obviously something you're passionate about and you're committed to and you steep yourself in. Other than that, like what's something else you're geeking out on and you find is really interesting because you never know what might inspire our listeners. All right. Well, um, so... I, uh, okay, I, for your digital li listeners, I'm not sure if this would, would appeal to them, but this is my aha over the last few months, and I'm loving it. So, you know, I used to get a million subscriptions to magazines. I used to get, you know, New Yorker, Atlantic, Scientific American Mind, all of those. And the reason I like to get all those different magazines is because I would, I would ask myself to just read it cover to cover, because it just I just found that it broadened me so much. Um, and then, you know, eventually I went to, I only get my, you know, news on my phone or my, you know, iPad or whatever. And I, and I moved away from that. And I realized I'm not getting exposure to the broad range of topics like I used to get before. So I actually recently restarted some subscriptions. And so, for example, I just read an amazing article about a Finnish uh, artist who tries to make excruciating moments. And she showed up at Walt Disney World dressed as Snow White. And people immediately flocked to her for autographs and they tried to escort her out. And she said, what rule am I violating? They said, you're dressed as a character. And she said, look, there's a little girl dressed as Snow White. There's a boy dressed as Mickey Mouse. So, and it's just like great. It just, I thought, how cool is that? And I never would have read that. So I guess I'm going, in some ways I'm going non-digital. Yeah, well, and I think it's so easy to stay inside your bubble. Yeah. Because the algorithms know what you're liking. That's and it's right. just showing you more of what right. you like. Right. So how do we force ourselves to get out of that? Um, I love that. That's fantastic. Um, what is probably the biggest moment that has impacted you as a woman working in kind of the corporate world and that sort of defined how you show up and in, in the wisdom that you bring forward today? That's a good question. I think the biggest impact would have to be that first international experience um, where that I just felt so lost and alone and tr was just scrambling to figure out how to make this work. Um, and then, you know, it was, what was so cool about that is I had second chances because then I was transferred to South Africa for a year and worked in Australia and Switzerland. And, and I could take all of those lessons and really learn how to I don't want to say, I think of my, I th just thought, and I said that I had a picture of myself spreading my whole personality out, like in a spectrum. So rather than being a narrow white woman from the Midwest, I had all these life experiences that, that I could connect with people in so many more ways. Um, and every experience like that um, helped me grow more. So, but that, that first one was, I could have just fled from it. And the fact that I, I really tried to grow from it has changed my life. Mm. 
That's beautiful. So it serves as a reminder for me to always keep my eyes open when for to find those moments of other cultures to enrich in me and to diversify my type of live, lived experience because no two people are the same. Exactly. Awesome. Lynn, thank you so much for being with me today. Final wisdom and thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Uh, Keep growing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, though. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm so glad to have had you with us. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Women in Agile podcast. It's brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and scrum.org. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. And as always, you can go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations.